he has a great deal of zeal, or she has a great deal of zeal. Ever, ever heard anyone say that about anyone else, or have you ever said that about anyone else? I appreciate his zeal or her zeal. Zeal is a, a very interesting word, a very important word, particularly interesting as we look at it in the New Testament. It is not used uh, all that often, I think 17 times, but the fervency of mind and spirit that this word suggests permeates every page of the New Testament as one reads about the early Christians who exemplified this characteristic, the characteristic of zeal. It's interesting as we look at the word itself, in the language in which the New Testament was written, it can be either a positive thing or a negative thing because literally the idea of the word is, is a burning or a fire, something that is hot. And so we sometimes talk about someone who's really on fire about something. Uh, it would be appropriate to say he or she has a great deal of zeal about something because that literally is, is the idea. But sometimes it is used in a very negative sense. We can be on fire for something that's totally wrong. And sometimes the word is even translated jealousy and used in a negative sense, but sometimes translated jealousy on one occasion and, and used in a positive uh, sense. The Apostle Paul, for example, in the second Corinthian letter in chapter uh, 11 at verse 2, wrote to the Corinthian church and said this, For I am jealous for you with godly Jealousy, and that word jealousy is the word that is quite often translated elsewhere as zeal, as zeal. In this case, Paul said, I have a zeal, a jealousy for you that is a godly jealousy, protective of you, concerned about you, jealous over you, because he goes on, for I have betrothed you to one husband that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. In other words, I converted you to Christ I preach the gospel and I have betrothed you to Christ and now I'm jealous over you as a husband and a, and a bride here in a godly way, in a good way. And then there's another text at which we can look in John chapter 2. You remember when Jesus on that occasion went in and with great zeal cleansed the temple. He cleansed the temple on two occasions, didn't he? But on this occasion in John chapter 2, when Jesus cleansed the temple, when he drove out the, the money changers there, made a whip of cords, drove them all out of the temple, John 2.15, with the sheep and the oxen, poured out the changers' money, overturned the tables, and he said to those who sold doves, take these things away, do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. And then verse 17 says his disciples remembered something. They remembered a passage from Psalm 69 which says, zeal for your house has eaten me up. Zeal for your house has eaten me up. Jesus exhibited a tremendous zeal for the proper worship of God under that dispensation of time, under the law of Moses. And there are some passages that are very revealing as we study this matter of of zeal, and that's what I want us to do for a few minutes together today. I want to look at the characteristic of zeal. I want to look at it from two standpoints. First of all, the value of it, the value of zeal, the value of having zeal in the proper sense, obviously. And then secondly, the source of that 
zeal. What is it that should motivate us? What is the source that, that motivates us to have that kind of zeal? The kind of zeal that God wants us to have. The kind of zeal that Jesus exhibited in the passage we just looked at in John 2. Zeal for your house has eaten me up. What a statement that is. And so as we discuss the value of zeal, we're going to look at biblical texts briefly that exhibit or depict that zeal. Zeal as it permeates our prayer life. And we'll look at Colossians 4, 12 and 13 in that regard. And zeal in the practice of discipline. And we'll look at 1 Corinthians 5 and some passages from 2 Corinthians as well along those lines. Then I want us to see the value of zeal as it promotes good works. And that'll be Titus chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. Then I'd like to see the value of zeal as it produces repentance, Revelation 3. Verse 19, and then I want us to see the value of zeal as it perpetuates itself. It's contagious. Zeal is contagious. It perpetuates itself. So let's look at the value of zeal, first of all, as it permeates our prayer life. Look with me at Colossians chapter 4, verses 12 and 13. And here we have a man, I believe, who's mentioned only three times in the New Testament. A man by the name of Epaphras. Epaphras, Paul writes to the Colossians, who is one of you, a bondservant of Christ, greets you, always laboring fervently for you in prayers, that you may stand perfect and complete in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has a great zeal, there it is, for you and those who are in Laodicea and those in Hierapolis. Think about this man, Epaphras. Not much is said about him. As I said, he's mentioned three times in the New Testament. But, but if he were mentioned only in this regard, think about what is said about this man. This man labors fervently for you in prayers. That laboring fervently means that. Laboring fervently, it's the idea of agonizing over you in prayers. How fervent, how agonizing are our prayers at times for the lost. How agonizing and fervent are we in our prayers for each other, for brothers and sisters in Christ. How determined are we that we are going to do all that we can to help our brothers and sisters stand perfect and complete in all the will of God? And are we praying fervently, laboring, agonizing in prayer, as was Epaphras in that regard? It was not simply going through the motions in terms of his prayer life. Not at all. In fact, just the opposite is indicated here. And it simply reminds us of the kind of zeal that we're to have for one another and that that zeal is to be exhibited, that is to permeate our prayer life as it did the prayer life of Epaphras. We need to take prayer very, very seriously. And we need to pray very, very fervently. And we need to have a great zeal for our brothers and sisters in Christ. Let me ask you this. If we have the kind of zeal in prayer for our brothers and sisters, as did Epaphras for his brothers and sisters, how will we act toward our brothers and sisters? Will we act in accordance with our prayer for them if our prayer is truly as zealous as was Epaphras' prayer? Of course we will. In other words, prayer will promote... <laughs> good relations 
among brothers and sisters in Christ because it's hard to act ugly towards someone for whom you're praying so fervently and laboring and agonizing for in prayer, isn't it? If you have that kind of attitude that Epaphras had, I don't doubt for a moment, though very little is said about this man, that he was the kind of man who did all he could to build up the body of Christ wherever he went and wherever he could. And so we see then the value of zeal as it is to permeate our prayer life. But we also see another passage that indicates the value of zeal in the practice of discipline. And of course you remember that in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, the man living with his father's wife, indicative of his stepmother there, that um, they were puffed up about it, didn't mourn over it. Perhaps, uh, as we have mentioned before, perhaps... Uh, uh, patting themselves on the back that they could be so inclusive that they could even accept this man and his, uh, and his, uh, his wife here or his, uh, his father's wife. Whatever produced the, uh, the pride and the arrogance here about this, Paul said it's wrong. And he wrote very decisively and admonished them very definitively to withdraw themselves from this man discipline him and to be zealous in doing so now were they zealous in doing so and did he compliment them for that well yes indeed if you look at the second corinthian epistle after he admonished them to withdraw from this man when you look at at second corinthians you see that there is a clear indication here that the man repented and in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 3, he said, I wrote this very thing to you, lest when I came I should have sorrow over those from whom I ought to have joy, having confidence in you all that my joy is the joy of you all. Down at verse 6, he says this punishment, he's talking about the punishment against the man who was living with his father's wife, this punishment which was inflicted by the majority is sufficient for such a man, so that on the contrary you ought rather to forgive and comfort him, lest perhaps such a one be swallowed up with too much sorrow. Very clear indication that the man repented. Very clear indication that they followed Paul's admonition and that they practiced this discipline. But now look at 2 Corinthians 7 and verse 11. And there's where we find our word. He says, For observe this very thing, that you sorrowed in a godly manner. In other words, you sorrowed when I wrote to you about your attitude toward this man and your actions toward this man that you were receiving him and this woman, taking them into your fellowship, not doing what you needed to do, when I wrote to you about that, you sorrowed. But you sorrowed in a godly manner. Now look at this. What diligence it produced in you. What clearing of yourselves. What indignation. What fear. What vehement desire. What zeal. What vindication. In all things you proved yourselves to be clear in this matter. They exhibited zeal, fervency in following what Paul had written to them in the practice of discipline. The value of zeal as it permeates our prayer life, as it, as it is seen in the practice of discipline, very important. We need to be zealous in those respects. But what about zeal as it promotes good works? Look at Titus chapter 2 and see our word there, verses 13 and 14. 
great passage. We go back to verse 11 to gain the context, context more fully. For the grace of God, Paul writes, that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for, in other words, the whole time we're living this way, we're to look for, keep on looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, verse 14, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed, now notice it, and purify for himself his own special people, what? Zealous for good works. Zealous for good works. How important is it that we be involved in good works? It's absolutely crucial. But what about the attitude toward those works? Well, this is our duty. I know we got to do this. I need to be there. I need to be a part of a a visitation group, or I need to do this. I know that's my duty. No, that's not the attitude. We cannot lose sight of this word, zealous. He does not simply say here to be engaged in good works. He says, you be excited about being involved in good works. At whatever age you are, you do what you can with zeal and fervor. It's vitally important. That if you are among the redeemed, you realize that you've been purified, you are a part of God's own special people, and as such, you are constantly zealous for good works. Doesn't mean I can always do those works that I once did. We've talked about that before. I may reach a point in my life where I, I am curtailed physically, but I am never curtailed mentally from the standpoint of the attitude that I have toward my service in the kingdom and toward my place in the kingdom. My zeal will be evident till the day I draw my dying breath. That must be the determination of every one of us. And if that is a reality with us, no matter what age we are and our zeal is still being seen, think of the influence that that exerts on those who are younger, who see someone in his or her 80s or 90s still what? Zealous for good works. Able to do what they were always able to do? Of course not. But exhibiting that attitude of zeal and fervency of spirit and wanting to do all that they can. Oh, what an example that is. And oh, how many examples of that very thing we have right here in this congregation. That's why young people would do well. <laughs> they would do well to become a part of a group like White Oak with so many older members who are serving the Lord with every fiber of their being to the very extent that they can and who are still zealous of good works and who would provide and do provide a wonderful example for all of us of all ages that we must be of that same mindset. Zealous for good works. That must be the attitude. The body may not always cooperate with the mind in that respect. But the mind, the mind to work is there. And the zeal, the zeal. This is such a vitally important passage that we have just noticed. His own peculiar people, special people, who are they? They are those who are zealous for good works. Zeal promotes good works. If you love me, Jesus said in John 14, 15, keep my commandments. And his commandments are not grievous. Love motivates. Love produces zeal. Love and zeal are very closely tied together. 
Because if I love as I should, as I should the zeal is going to be there, isn't it? The zeal is going to be there. And no one's going to take that away from me. But what about zeal as it promotes repentance, as it produces repentance? In Revelation chapter 3, we find the text there that clearly reveals that we should be zealous when we have come to the realization that we need to repent. We should not hesitate to do so. In fact, we should be zealous to do so. Listen to what the Lord says here in Revelation 3.19 through the Apostle John. As many as I love, I what? I rebuke and chasten. Therefore, be zealous and repent. And then he says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore, be zealous and repent. We talked a little bit about this attitude in Bible class this morning that if indeed we find ourselves as members of a congregation where we are subject to rebuke from those elders who are watch, watching out for our souls, then I should be zealous to repent. If I need to repent, if it's a matter of sin, I need to be zealous to repent. Need to be eager to repent. Why? Because I recognize that it's love that prompted the rebuke. And that kind of love I'm going to respond to. The goodness of God, remember, should lead us to repent. Remember what Paul wrote in Romans chapter 2, verses 4 and 5? Or do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance, and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? The goodness of God ought to make us zealous to repent when repentance is necessary. Because God has been good enough to give us the means out of our sin if we find ourselves in sin. And good enough to give us opportunity to repent. Zeal as it produces repentance. And what about zeal as it perpetuates itself? That's the last point we make concerning the value of zeal. Zeal as it perpetuates itself. And to see that we go back to 2 Corinthians. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, something very, very encouraging is revealed to us here about zeal. In 2 Corinthians 9, concerning the contribution here for the poor saints that uh, Paul was collecting to take to uh, Jerusalem, he says in verse uh, 1, Now concerning the ministering to the saints, it is superfluous for me to write to you, for I know your willingness about which I boast of you to the Macedonians, that Achaia was ready a year ago. Now listen, and your zeal has stirred up the majority. Isn't that exciting? Should be. Your zeal has stirred up the majority. What about your zeal? What about my zeal? Can we say that my zeal stirs up the majority? Or what about my attitude? How does it affect the majority? How important is that? Vitally important. I need to determine that individually I'm going to make sure that by my presence, by my presence, and by my prayers, and by my practice, my zeal is going to stir up the majority. It's not going to discourage the majority. It's going to stir up the majority. If every single one of us will make that determination, oh, good things will continue to happen and even greater things will occur. 
zeal perpetuates itself. Paul said so. Your zeal has stirred up the majority. Your generosity has encouraged others to be generous. That ought to be an exciting thing. Influence. Example. Powerful thing. The Lord really, in effect, made the same point, didn't he? In the Sermon on the Mount when he said, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and what? Glorify your Father in heaven. You can lead others to glorify God by what they see in your glorification of God, by your zeal, by your life. And that's what we must determine to do. And there's no greater joy and satisfaction than the joy and satisfaction that come from doing that very thing. And yet, many apparently do not realize that because their lives don't reflect it, do they? Their attendance doesn't reflect it, etc. Now, having seen the value of zeal briefly, what about the source of it? You see, that is vitally important. You can't talk about the value of zeal without talking about the source of it because zeal can be misplaced if it is not emanating from the proper source. I've got to make sure my zeal is based upon the proper foundation. And that leads us to Romans 10, doesn't it? Leads us to Romans chapter 10, verses 1 and 2. Paul writes, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God. There it is. But here it is. But not according to knowledge. Then verse 3. For they being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness have not submitted to the righteousness of God. There it is. The source of zeal. What is it? Knowledge. Knowledge that comes from only one source. What is that source? The word of God. Who would possibly deny that there is a great deal of zeal in the religious world today on the part of those who, who believe that their source of zeal is uh, some direct operation of the Holy Spirit. That their source of zeal is a total misunderstanding of their religious practice based upon having been misled by some false teacher or preacher, some creed of men, some book written by men that supplies their rules for religion rather than basing their zeal and their emotion on knowledge of God's word. Theirs is emotion based on error. Ours must be emotion based on truth. Our zeal must be based upon God's word. The sword of the spirit will produce every response in us that others claim today come from some direct miraculous leading of the Holy Spirit. They contend that it has to be the word of God plus. This is a dead letter unless it is enlivened by some direct operation of the Spirit. No, this book is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, Hebrews 4.12 reminds us. The word of God is living and active. All scripture is given by the inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, in instruction for correction in righteous instruction in righteousness that the man of God may be what? Complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. For what? Every good work. What do I need to have zeal produced in me? The kind of zeal that we've talked about and the valuable zeal that we have talked about, it is knowledge, but knowledge that comes from the Word of God. 
And that's what Romans 10, 1 through 3 makes abundantly clear. I bear them record, he said, they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. And we've talked about before how there are those who get on their bicycles and ride for, you know, day after day after day, go for two years and serve in, in a uh, mission field and sacrifice much. There are those in various religious groups who exhibit zeal that is unsurpassed, unsurpassed. But the problem, tragically, is that zeal, however sincere it is, unless its source is proper, will avail nothing. And that's what Paul makes abundantly clear. How concerned was he about his brethren in the flesh, the Israelites? My heart's desire, he said, for Israel is that they might be saved. What is your heart's desire? Our heart's desire is that the world be saved. It should be. And our prayer should be that all the world would have the opportunity to hear the gospel in our generation. And then I've got to act in accordance with my prayer and my heart's desire and do all that I can to, to help that become a reality. How, how much desire did Paul have in this regard? If you go back one chapter in Romans to chapter 9, he says, I tell the truth in Christ, verse 1, I'm not lying. My conscience also bearing witness in the Holy Spirit. Verse 2, that I have a great sorrow. I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were a curse from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen according to the flesh. Who are they, Paul? Verse 4, who are Israelites. Israelites. What a statement. What a desire. When Paul wrote in Romans 10, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved, you can count on the fact that he meant that with every fiber of his being. And what he said earlier in that epistle, I could wish myself accursed. I have continual grief and great sorrow in my heart. Well, I thought Paul said rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. He did. And he did. <laughs> he wrote it and he did it. But he also <coughs> grieved over the sins of those who were his fellow countrymen. And we must have that same kind of attitude, that same kind of zeal. A zeal, though, based upon knowledge. Knowledge of the Word of God. The vast majority of the religious world says, take the Word, yes, but also you've got to have something else. A better felt than told experience, a leading of the Holy Spirit. No, what we need is the sword of the Spirit along with the realization of its power to produce joy, strength, peace, hope, and zeal within our hearts. And for every Christian to have that strength of heart, the strength to remain faithful, to be continually characterized by zeal, it doesn't take the Spirit living in us in some direct way. It takes the Word of the God of Heaven living within us. And we must imbibe it, and we must live it out 
in our lives. This morning, if you have a zeal for God, but it's not according to knowledge, you're in the same tragic situation that Paul described about his fellow Israelites at one time. They, being ignorant of God's righteousness, that is, his plan for making them righteous, the gospel, and going about to establish their own righteousness, their own system, as so many are doing today, they have not submitted to the righteousness of God. Nor have you, if you're a part of a man-made religion, if you have not believed in Jesus as the Christ in a way to move you forward, to fully repent of your sins, to confess him as the Christ, and then to be buried with him in baptism, we plead with you to do that. Lay aside those creeds, the righteousness of men. Lay aside those traditions. Lay aside, lay aside all that is contrary to the will of God as revealed in his word. And especially the last will and testament of Jesus Christ, the New Testament, the covenant to which we are accountable and amenable and to which we will be accountable when we stand before God and Christ in the judgment and submit to it and to it alone. That's the righteousness of God. Don't be ignorant of it. Be obedient to it. And if you need to come home to your first love as a wayward child of God and once again know the joy and the peace that come from being righteous according to God's plan for making one righteous, then we plead with you to do that. And for all who need no repentance, may you never lose sight of your need for the kind of zeal that must characterize each one of us until we draw our last breath or until the Lord comes again, whichever comes first. If you need to come now, we plead with you to do so as we stand and sing.